If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1. This is our third week in our uh, Advent series called A Lasting Faith. And, and by the way, just want to say thank you. So grateful for those of you who have reached out by email or text just to say how the, the Lord's been working through this series to encourage you. And, and I feel the same way. The Lord has really nourished my own soul by this book, 2 Timothy. And again, I'm, I'm thankful for your comments. Um, last week, we looked at verses 3 through 7. We're working our way through this little book in the New Testament known as 2 Timothy. And we talked last week about this idea of a gospel identity. That was really the thrust of the passage. Uh, when we talk about identity, we're talking about what is it that you believe makes you, you? Uh, what is it that, that you look at that to define yourself? When someone asks you who you are, when you introduce yourself to the, for the first time to someone, how do you go about that? Do you talk about your vocation? You know, I'm a, I'm a nurse, I'm a doctor, I'm a teacher, I'm, I'm a, uh, an engineer, whatever it is. Is that kind of what you believe defines you? Do you talk about your family situation? I'm a mom, or I'm a dad, or I'm a grandpa, or grandma, or whatever it is. And uh, do you think about something you've been through, or maybe something that's that's happened to you? So these are things that help to shape that we that we look to, uh, and we locate our identity. And I I heard a pastor say uh, recently, a pastor who retired after 41 years of pastoral ministry, was really looking forward to the time together with his wife, and and they had just started their kind of retirement phase, and he was in the living room one day. He walked in the kitchen and saw his wife curled up in a corner, just sobbing in the fetal position. He went over to her, of course, got down on the floor and said, hey, what's wrong? What, what, why are you upset? She said, I don't even really know who I am anymore. I don't know how to even define myself. I've been a pastor's wife for four decades. I don't even know what I am anymore. So we locate our identity in, in, in a variety of things. And when we talk about a gospel identity... We're talking about learning to see ourselves as God sees us in Christ. So I asked the question and hopefully answered it last week, what would it change, what difference would it make if we were able to see ourselves the way God sees us? That's what we talk about when we talk about a gospel identity. Well, it won't surprise you, of course, to, to hear that the Apostle Paul is still talking about the gospel in this letter. Um, he's, he's talking about it, and, and remember who he's talking to, who he's writing to. He's writing to Christians, believers, some new believers, some mature believers. He's writing to pastors and elders, uh, deacons and servants, and he keeps reminding them about the gospel. And maybe the fascinating part of this is that when Paul writes, he almost never assumes that those to whom he writes actually have a full understanding of the gospel. So he keeps, again, rehearsing the gospel to them. And in the passage that we're in this morning, we're going to read verses 8 through 18, spend most of our time in, in verses 8 through 14. We're going to see one of the most beautiful displays of the gospel, really, in the New Testament. Uh, William Barclay, who was a Scottish minister and radio host back in the early uh, 20th century, he said, there are a few passages in the New Testament which have in them and behind them such a sense of the sheer grandeur of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this morning we're going to look at three things, the glory of the gospel, the assurance of the gospel, and the call of the gospel. So let's look together at 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1, and I'm going to start just by reading verse 8. Here reads the word of the Lord. Paul says, therefore do not be ashamed of 
of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Paul says, therefore, or in light of what I've said to you this point, in light of this fact that God has given us us this spirit, not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Now, notice whom the testimony is about. It's about our Lord, or more specifically in the Greek, it's about the Lord Jesus. So often when we think of testimony, we think of sharing our story. And yet when we see this, the word testimony in the New Testament, it is almost always, not always, but almost always a reference to the testimony about Jesus Christ. I mentioned in our Capshaw Academy class a couple of weeks ago that really in the last 50 years or so, there's been this strong emphasis on story with the the advent of what we call postmodernism, which of course the era in history that came after modernism. There's been this strong emphasis on narrative. And even when it comes to sharing our faith, you might read books that are about evangelism that say that the, the key is to share your story of personal transformation. Now, of course, the emphasis on story is nothing new. Jesus did most of his teaching by stories, right? They're called parables. Uh, Two-thirds of the Bible comes to us in the form of story, historical narrative. So this is not something that's new with with post-modernity. It's been the case all along. And please don't misunderstand me. Stories are important. Your story is, is very important. We are wired to be storytellers and story receivers. So we're created that way. So stories are important. But the reality is, as great as your story may be or mine may be, None of our stories has the power to bring to life those who are spiritually dead. Only the gospel can do that. Only the testimony about our Lord, which is really the, the testimony about the birth of Christ, the, the perfect obedient life of Christ, the substitutionary death of Christ, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, his uh, intercessory work even now, and the impending return of Jesus. This is what Paul's talking about when he says, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Paul tells Timothy, ultimately, this is not about you. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. A New Testament scholar and professor Michael Horton says, we have too much loose talk in the church today about us being the gospel. We turn the focus on ourselves. We talk about our living the gospel saying more than anything we can preach. But what the world needs is not more of us. They see plenty of us already. What the world needs is churches who will talk about sin and proclaim the forgiveness that is in Jesus Christ, but then actually confess their sins and receive the forgiveness that is in Christ. Rather than talking about how great the church is or how many locations there are or how great the ministries are. So, Paul tells Timothy, after he tells him how much he loves him, how much he misses him, and how much he's praying for him, and all these things, he says, yeah, but really, it's not about you, it's about Jesus. Now, when we share in Christ's suffering, verse 8, we do so for the sake of the gospel and by the power of God. In other words, when we persevere through suffering by the power of God, we actually get put on display 
God's saving power in us, and therefore we give credence to the gospel message. But even our suffering is not to make us look great. It's not to be about us or even what we've been through. The gospel is the focus. So after making this point, Paul will then give, I think, what is one of the most arresting descriptions of the gospel in the New Testament. Look at verses 9 and 10. Paul says, The power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and now, which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. You can't read verses 9 and 10 without being smacked in the face uh, by the reality that the gospel is the gospel of grace. God's salvation is all of grace. It is, as I gave this message the title, everything of God. God saved us and called us, verse 9, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace. In other words, before we had ever done anything, good or bad, God determined, according to His infinitely wise purpose, to give some to belong to the Son, whom the Son would completely and totally save. So here's our first point as it relates to the glory of the gospel. The glory of the gospel is that none of our salvation is dependent upon us, but on an all-powerful and faithful God. Verse 9 in the English Standard Version, uh, which I preach from, and I know most of you in the room probably have, it says that God saved us to, you see that word to, to a holy calling. But the Greek word there, which appears in the dative sense, which I don't expect to mean anything to you, but what this, I think it's actually better translated with. God saved us with a holy calling. In fact, if you have a New American Standard Bible or even uh, the Christian Standard Bible, which is the, the Bible of the Southern Baptists, they both have the word with rather than to. Now, it's not to say that you know, we're not called to a holy calling. There are other passages in the Bible that talk about this. We certainly are. But what Paul's saying here is that God saved us with a holy calling. This is a reference to what theologians call the effectual call. Before God created the world, before, quote, the ages began, God determined to save some with a holy calling whom He would, by His grace, effectually draw to Himself, enabling them to respond by faith to the gospel invitation. Now, this is the case with everyone who's been saved. Our salvation couldn't be because of anything we've done because we hadn't even been born yet, Paul says, when God determined to make us His own children. It was verse 9 before the ages began, and not of works, but because of His own purpose and grace. So often, I think when we talk about these biblical doctrines of predestination, election, God's sovereignty, um, they become fodder for debate or, or really even infighting within the church, but that was never what they were intended for. These beautiful doctrines are expressed throughout the Scripture as a way to comfort the believer. Paul wants Timothy to know, yeah, not only has God called you to this very difficult task right, of shepherding a very challenging church, 
and he will see you through it. But not only has he called you to that, but before you were even born, before you had even done anything, God called you, first of all, to be a son in Christ, called you to belong to himself. So not only are these trials you're going through part of God's sovereign plan for you, but they're ordained for you by a God who loves you, and in fact, a God who has always loved you before you were even born. He chose you as his own. He determined to give you faith, and since he's always loved you and always called you his own, no trial will overtake you. And Timothy needs to hear this. No plot by the devil will destroy you. No scheme of man, as we sing together, can ever pluck you from God's hand. And this is as true for you this morning as it was for Timothy. If you are in Christ, if you have repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus Christ, if you are depending, clinging only to Jesus Christ's work, it's because before the ages began, God said about you, this one is mine. Your salvation is of God all the way through. It was neither initiated by you, nor does the completion of it depend on you. And I don't know what the last two years have been like for you, you know, specifically. I don't know how things have gone in your home and at your work and, you know, with your family. But I know there are some experiences that we've all uh, had as a result of living kind of in this post-pandemic world. And one of the things that, that I've noticed is there are some things that we used to be able to depend on that we just can't depend on anymore. For example, it used to be that if you went to a restaurant, you know, a national chain, for example, on a day in the middle of the week, say, say Wednesday, you could depend on the fact that that restaurant would be open, right? But you can't depend on that anymore. I went to two restaurants last week, and they both had a handwritten paper sign on the door saying the dining room is closed because, oh, they didn't explain why, but, but because of insufficient workers. I know that's to be the case. I went in Burger King the other day, Janine and I went in Burger King the other day, um, and when I walked in the restaurant, the guy behind the counter, as soon as he saw me, started shaking his head in disgust. And, and he said in a volume that I could actually hear, he said, are you kidding me? More customers? Now, now you wouldn't think that that would be a way a restaurant would regard people who walk in. Now, recognizing he didn't want me there, I still courageously approached the counter, and I said, I'd like to order uh, two Whopper meals, please. He said, oh, we're out of Whoppers. And I thought to myself, like, isn't BK known as the home of the Whopper? And you don't have any Whoppers. I didn't, I didn't say anything. I, I felt badly for him. There were three people working. We used to be able to depend on that. Here's another thing we used to be able to depend on. If you ordered new furniture from a well-known and, and reputable store, uh, you could expect to receive it while you're still alive to enjoy it. Um, but you can't depend on that anymore because orders are not only months out, some orders are years out away from fulfillment. It used to be that if you rented a car from a national organization and you had on your possession a hard copy of the confirmation number, it used to be that they'd have a car for you. 
Uh, but I flew cross-country several months ago to San Diego after having reserved and actually paid for my car three months in advance, only to find when I touched down in San Diego, you know, put, took my phone off of airplane mode and I clicked the, the email button to see that I got an email. I received an email while I was in flight saying, we're sorry, we have no car available for you at this time. We'll call you in 24 hours to discuss the solution. I'm thinking, now San Diego is nice, but what am I going to do the next 24 hours? Just walk around? You, you, there are things that we used to be able to depend on we can't depend on anymore. And I'm not judging because I also realize that we're not so dependable ourselves. We have to cancel dinners and trips and appointments and vacations because we've gotten sick or we've been exposed to someone who's been sick. And these are all necessary responses, I, I know, but they do reveal just how little control we actually have. And the fact of the matter is, even before COVID, we've never really been in control of anything. We can't guarantee anything. We can't guarantee that we'll live one more day. I always kind of laugh on the inside when I hear someone look at someone to make a really heartfelt promise or guarantee. I promise you this will never happen. I think, you have no idea. You can't make that promise. We, we just, we're not controlled of anything. And when I, when I think about that, I'm really glad that my salvation doesn't depend on me in any way but on God. Because I know that I would surely find some way to mess it up. I know I would. Salvation is all because of God's grace. And this grace is not just invisible. Paul says it has been made visible in Jesus Christ. In verse 10, Paul writes that this grace has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So by living a completely obedient life in word, action, deed, motive, thought, and dying on a cruel cross, a cursed death, Jesus became a curse for us. Jesus stood condemned in our place. Jesus became an abomination for us. But he was raised again on the third day, showcasing his power over death and hell and giving everlasting proof that his payment for our sins was sufficient. He was glorified with the glory prepared for him before the world was made, where he now intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father as he awaits his return, where he will bring all of those who are in him to be with him forever. So death for us, we who are in Christ, is not a frightening thing. Jesus took on the wrath of God that we deserve so that we need not fear the wrath of God ever again. His death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. His life is our life. And that life goes on forever. Now look at verses 11 and 12. Paul says, Through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Now who's guarding what in verses 11 and 12? Well, Paul is confident that God will guard him, 
Paul, the minister of the gospel, and God will guard the purity and extension of the gospel as well. Paul says, I know in whom I have believed and that he is able. So Paul's confidence is in the power and the faithfulness of God. God is able. Certainly, God will guard the gospel, the testimony about Jesus, until what Paul Paul calls that day, until the day when Jesus will return and make right everything that's wrong with the world. God will guard the gospel, but Paul also knows that God will guard those who are in Christ, those who have received the gospel message, those who have believed in Christ. So again, Paul is confident that God will, that God will guard Paul, that he will not let Paul fall away, because after all, God chose Paul before he made the world to be an apostle, a preacher, an evangelist, and most importantly, a son. So God will guard Paul, his faith, and his eternal destiny. Here's our second point as it relates to the assurance of the gospel. The assurance of the gospel is that we are secure in God's eternally strong hands. We are secure in God's eternally strong hands. We've talked so much about this sort of deconstruction movement on Sunday mornings and and Wednesday nights that I hate to almost bring it up again. But as we look around and we see pastors and preachers and worship leaders and songwriters and apologists even renounce the faith, as we see people say, you know what, I'm no longer a Christian. It, 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 you know, as we say, it, it is actually stricken fear in, in a lot of our hearts. We're asking the question, I, I have never been asked a question so much as I have over the last year by people who want to know, how can I know that I won't fall away from the faith? How can I know that my faith is secure? And, and I understand it. I mean, I, I get the questions. How many of us find ourselves at times concerned about whether we will remain in the faith? Well, what the gospel tells us, and this is why Paul had such confidence in it, is that we didn't choose God. He chose us before we were born. We didn't seek out God. He sought us out. Before we ever called on God, God first called us to Himself in such a way that guaranteed our salvation. We're not the ones who complete our faith. He is the author and finisher of our faith. The one we have believed in will guard unto that day His gospel and all those who have entrusted, who trusted in it. So what I've said recently to those who have asked me that question, and I, I don't know how helpful it's been. I hope it's been helpful. Those who have asked me that question, I, here's what I've said. It's, kind of a, it's become a bit of a, a regular theme for me. I've said, here's the deal. The completion of your salvation is not contingent on the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith. The one who began a work in you will surely carry it out to completion because God is that faithful. So I say, look, pray about it, but don't worry about it. Trust God. Share with Him your doubts. Be open and honest with Him. He can can receive it. And continue to take in the gospel, which is able, Paul tells Timothy, to save your soul. Now, seeing all this instability in our world and things changing so fast, and it's really unbelievable, isn't it? Some of the, some of the bedrock foundations you know, that we've really held on to have been uprooted. 
and we see things going around. It can be very scary. You know, we see the way the world is changing and, and the pace at which it is changing. But one thing we can know for sure is that God is guarding His gospel and He is guarding His children. doesn't mean that He will protect them from suffering. No, in fact, we're actually called to suffer in this passage. We will suffer. We will endure hardship. We will endure pain. But God will keep His own. Jesus promises that not one given to Him by the Father before the world was created will ever be lost. I love what John Calvin says about this. He writes, If we find no certainty in things on earth, we must know that our salvation rests upon God and that He holds it in such a manner that it can never vanish away. And then he says, sort of classic understatement, this is a happy consideration. This is encouraging. This is comforting. Paul knew this, and this is what sustained him as he languished in a tiny prison cell awaiting what would certainly be his execution. Paul knew that God was faithful and he was able and that God will not let one of his own fall away. That's the assurance of the gospel. Now look at verses 13 through 18. Paul says, Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. There's another reference to that day of the return of Christ. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. So I want to wrap up by, by looking at, by really considering this idea of the call of the gospel. So we've looked at the glory of the gospel, and we've looked at the assurance of the gospel. I want to, th- I want to think about the call of the gospel. Now, you may be thinking, you may be thinking, I thought you've said to us all along that the gospel is what God has done for us, not what we're supposed to do. The gospel is news, not a command. How then can the gospel call us to do something? Well, I don't imagine anybody's actually thinking that, but if you're thinking that, I'm thrilled by that, right? I'm really encouraged by that. And if you're thinking that, you're right. The gospel is news, not a command. We are sinful people who have rebelled against God in our hearts. We are constantly erecting idols in our hearts, other things we love more than God, other things we worship more than God. And the gospel is the announcement of what God has done to save us and to redeem this sin-cursed world through the person and work of His Son, who came again, lived for us, and died for us, and paid the penalty for our sins. So that's what the gospel announces. That's what the gospel is news of. But the gospel is an announcement that incites action. Now, here's what I mean. Imagine someone, you're sitting in the service, and and you're listening, and you're taking notes, or whatever it is, and someone comes up to you and quietly walks up in the service and says, hey, I just drove by your house, and it's on fire. It's on fire. Now, what have they demanded that you do? Nothing. They've not told you to do anything, have they? They've not told you to do one single thing. But are you going to do something? 
Yeah, you're going to storm out of here and see what you can do to remedy this situation. There was no command, only news. But it was news that incited in you a deep concern and an action. Well, the good news of the gospel moves us and mobilizes us to protect and share it. Let me say it a different way. This is our third point. The call of the gospel is to protect and proclaim the news of God's grace personified and poured out in Jesus Christ. Well, we're, what the gospel actually incites us to do is to, to protect and to proclaim the good news about Jesus. Now, we talk a lot in my house, believe it or not, about the law-gospel distinction. The reality that everything in the Bible that tells us to do something is law, and everything in the Bible that tells us what God has done to redeem, to save sinners in Christ, is gospel. And we know, because we talk about this a lot, that law commands, imperatives, demands, expectations, do's and don'ts, while good, while good, they never change a person's heart. The law tells us what to do. All the commands in Scripture, and there are hundreds of them, the law tells us what to do, but it never gives us the desire or the power to do it. Again, the law, it's good, it's right, it's pure, it's perfect, and so on, but it is lacking in power. It never gives us the power to do what it calls us to do. Whenever someone tells us to do something, especially if they demand it of us, what is our natural instinct? It is to buck against that, right? But when we are informed that when we were terrible, hateful, vicious enemies of God, God loved us and sent His Son. When we are informed that when we were running away from God, the hound of heaven followed after us and overwhelmed us with His goodness and mercy, which is what the 23rd Psalm is about. But we're informed that when we should have been written off, what happened instead? A place at the table was prepared for us where we would be the honored guest. When we're told of these things, what happens? Our hearts melt. And we want to honor someone who would love us at such a great cost. I've never been so happy as a parent as I was a few years ago when my 15-year-old daughter, well, this was not that long ago, came home from a church camp one time, and I asked her, I said, hey, how how did things go? How how were the messages? And she said, you know, they were basically all law with no gospel, and I left discouraged and unmotivated. I thought, I've made a lot of mistakes as a parent, probably a record-breaking number, frankly. But I did this right. My children know the difference between the law and gospel. We've talked about it so much in my family that my family members, they use it against me now. If I text my son, hey, please take out the trash when you get home, I get a one-word response, law. Seriously. I told my son after uh, one of his, the last meals he enjoyed before he returned to college, I said, hey, make sure that you, you tell mom, you thank mom for making such a delicious dinner. He said, well, I was going to before you said that, but now that you've told me to, my heart's not in it. You know how the law works. I said, if you ever want another free meal... You're going to find it in your heart to say something nice. 
If I forget my books at home and I ask my wife very, very kindly, hey, will you bring my books to my office that I left at home? I get one word response, law, law. Now, they're messing with me, right? But, but, but they know that the gospel and the law, they're different. And the gospel alone is the announcement of something that's been done. And the gospel, this, this love that's been lavished on the unlovable, this, this gift that's been given to the undeserving, that reality, that news is the only thing that will motivate us and compel us to do things for God, to obey God for the right reasons. It's the only thing. Now you say, what's the application? Well, if you want the people around you, your children, you know, your spouse, your, your friends, whatever, to do what you tell them, but to grow cold and indifferent toward you, just heap on them expectation after expectation, demand after demand, law upon law. They may do what you say, but their hearts will grow cold toward you. Now, if you want their affection to grow toward you in such a way that they actually want to do things that please you, give them grace. Unconditional love. Undeserved forgiveness. The reason that so many young adults have turned away from the faith, according to Harvard scholar Paul Zoll, is because they received law from the time they were babies, as though, he says, it was their mother's milk. Demand upon demand upon demand. Grades, behavior, looks, appearance, manners, it's all law all the time. And they say, if this is what it's about, if this is what the Christian faith is about, no, as soon as I get old enough, I'm out of here. And they don't return in a lot of cases. I told Janine early in our marriage, there are two things I don't ever want to say to our kids. One is, you're better than that, which is actually the worst kind of law because it sounds like it's a compliment, but really it's, it's law saying, you've disappointed me. And that the second thing I said I never want to say to our kids is, I'm disappointed in you. Those two are hard to come back from, frankly. Now, it doesn't mean, as a parent... Um, you're thinking, how does this guy's family work? You know, it doesn't mean that you don't ever have commands or demands or expectations of your children. It doesn't, I'm not saying you can never tell your kids what to do. Okay, that would be chaos, right? But I'm saying let grace be your resounding song. The same grace that you and I have received over and over. When we fail, when we blow it, when we mess up, when we fail to keep our promise, when we fail to do what God has told us to do, or even worse, we do exactly what God has called us to do, but with hearts that are bubbling over with self-righteousness and pride. What do we get? We don't get written off. We get grace upon grace. The news that we have been forgiven in Christ. The assurance that we are secure in God's eternally strong hands the never-wavering approval of God because of Jesus Christ. I was praying with some folks last week, and one person said something so stunning and so powerful. He said, God, thank you that you don't judge me the way that I judge everyone else. And I thought, what a humble heart overwhelmed by God's grace.
Well, Paul tells Timothy to do something, but he also informs Timothy of what's been done. He says in verses 13 and 14, follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me, that that the sound words is an idiom for the gospel. He's saying, he's saying, hold on to and preserve the gospel. Proclaim it in the way that you've seen me do it. But then he says, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. In other words, but remember, you've been given faith. You have been loved by God in Christ when you didn't deserve it. So I'm telling you to do something, but I'm also reminding you of what's been done. And then he flips it. Then you have the imperative followed by the indicative of the next statement. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, Guard the good deposit entrusted to us. In other words, he's saying that, that gospel message, the testimony about our Lord, make sure that it's never twisted or perverted. Hold on to it, guard it. But then he says, but remember, you've been given the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has given, been given to you and dwells within you. It will enable you to do what God's called you to do. So going back to what I said a moment ago, it won't be our lives that save anyone. Now, Our lives can certainly credit or discredit the gospel, but it won't be our lives that save anyone. It is the gospel that brings life to the dead, the testimony about our Lord Jesus. And and we are called to protect it and to proclaim it. But we are also informed over and over and over, not just what we're supposed to do, but what God has already done. God has loved us with an everlasting love chosen us before the ages began. He will enable us, He will empower us, and He will give us everything He requires of us. As Augustine prayed, Lord, command what You will, but give what You command. And He will keep us to the very end, all of it, by His grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a daunting task to rightly proclaim and protect and to guard the deposit of the gospel. It is, again, it is a challenge that we know in our own strength we could never do, we could never meet. And yet you've promised to give us the Holy Spirit, which you've given us. You've promised to keep us unto yourself. And you've promised to enable us to do what you call us to do as you pour out by your grace your love in our hearts, Romans 5, your strength for service, the boldness required to bear witness of your name. And Father, I pray this morning that we would so revel in your love and your power and your faithfulness and your grace to us that it would be the case that we just can't help but speak. As the psalmist says, your word grew hot within me and I spoke with my tongue. Help us, Lord, to be so overwhelmed by your love and your mercy and your grace that we can't wait to talk about it with someone else. Give us the grace to believe what we've heard this morning in your word, and we'll praise you in Christ's name. Amen.